Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51, and can be found on page 6 in your bulletin. The next day, Jesus decided to go from Bethsaida, the city of Philip, and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, angels of God, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning to see you? And we also ask that you open the eyes of our hearts that we might not just understand with our minds, but that you would transform us from the heart. And Lord, we ask that you would transform the way we serve with our hands this morning through your word. Change what we believe and therefore what we do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we have a text that is about expectations. As we follow the narrative of John here, we see that Nathaniel and us like him has certain expectations and they are subsequently disrupted by Jesus. And as the text ends, finally Jesus gives Nathaniel and us with him new expectations. And so we'll see Jesus move us from cynicism to eager expectation by the end. Jesus, frankly, is excited about what we will see with Nathaniel throughout Jesus' lifetime and after. And so we're going to look at three points in your bulletin there on the back side from the text. You have an outline. We're going to look at our old expectations that are then disrupted expectations. And finally, our new expectations that Jesus gives us. So we'll take up our old expectations first. And for that, we have to look at what Nathaniel expects. All right, And what Nathaniel expects, of course, is nothing new. Look at the first three verses again with me. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, every gospel has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of the same time period of Jesus, all have some version of the same. So in Matthew chapter 13, it reads like this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? We know his brothers. We know his sisters. And so they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And a prime example of that 
is James, the author of the book of James, who was Jesus' brother and had a front row seat to Jesus and all the things that he did. Some of those we'll get into today. Front row seat, and yet he was not a believer until late into adulthood. And why is the question for us? Because we see what we expect to see. We see what we expect to see. I think I'm using this right, confirmation bias. It's the idea that you, you have a tendency to look for and find what you expect to see rather than what is actually there. And that's what's going on with Nathaniel. It's what's going on in our hearts. It's also what's going on with the penguin in one of our favorite children's books, Nothing Ever Happens at the South Pole. So this penguin is walking around. He gets this, uh, this journal in the mail and it says, write down all the great things you get to see today. And so he starts out very excited and he says in the beginning, something might happen. All I have to do is look. And as he goes along, he says, it doesn't matter which way I go. Something is sure to happen and all this snow. So he starts out very positive, very hopeful. And as he goes, he sees nothing new, nothing noteworthy. And he, he describes all these things he, wish he was, wishes he was going to see. Like a couple of wolves that are, that are battling in the snow. He said, that would be really cool. But that's not happening here while it's happening right behind him, right? And the next place he goes, he's, he said, it would be really exciting to be, you know, to face a huge walrus. And the walrus is right behind him. He's like, but nothing's happening here. Nothing like that. And it goes on and on to the point where he's just looking for nothing new. And he finally says, that snow is much too thin for anything good to happen. And, and as the whole thing ends with him hoping that all these things are going to happen, but none of them happening because he doesn't have eyes to see. He finally ends the story by saying, there's only one thing to write. Nothing ever happens at the South Pole. Right? We think that. Nothing ever happens in our lives. We see what we expect to see, which is nothing different. People act in certain ways, and they continue to act in those ways. Our kids do the same thing again and again. We ourselves think to ourselves, I'm not going to do that again. And of course, we go back to it time and again. We start a new Bible reading plan and quit for the 18th time in our lives. We start exercising again and getting healthy again for the eighth time in as many years. Our expectations for our kids and for our parents, perhaps, for our marriages, for ourselves, for our church, for our jobs, maybe for God. The expectations is nothing is going to change. We've seen the same thing over and over again and nothing new happens. And we're rarely disrupted, right? And when we are disrupted, we kind of forget, and sometimes we miss it. We forget about it. We push aside those things that have happened in our life, and we start taking those things for granted. Like maybe the first time we met Jesus and learned about Jesus, and it was exciting, and it changed our lives, and it kind of goes on the back burner. Or events in life that change everything. When you're first married, or the first uh, birth of a child, or the first college degree in your family, or your first decent job, or decent uh, paid wage, or your first best friend, we kind of forget the excitement of those things, and we think, Nothing ever really happens that's different. We forget and we take them for granted. And most of you sitting here this morning are probably Christians. And as Christians, you expect a certain pattern out of life. The Bible talks about making sense of, of the world for us. And it does do that. It makes sense of the regular patterns. But we have an entire religion that hinges on the normal patterns being disrupted. We have a religion also of ex exceptions, when the patterns of this world are actually disrupted. When I'm on campus, I'm a campus pastor at Penn State, and one of the huge hurdles I find with the students I talk to who aren't Christians is that they, the miracles, they just can't get over the miracles, right? The resurrection of Jesus being the height of all the miracles. 
And they're like, that just doesn't happen. People who are dead don't just come alive. But that, that's actually the very point of the miracles, is that these things don't normally happen. They are exceptions that come into our world and they change everything. And they disrupt our expectations from then on. You know, I don't really want disruptions. I wonder if you're the same way. If you're like me, you try to hedge some of those disruptions. You try to get ahead of them. You try to seek comfort. But yet here, Jesus disrupts us. Every time we read the scriptures, if we have eyes to see, he's disrupting our lives. When Nathaniel, like many of us, believes in a big God who does big things on paper. He's a believer of the Old Testament. He probably knows the Bible. I would, I would bet he knows the Bible better than everyone in here. He knows his Bible, which is the Old Testament, the scriptures Jesus would have read. And he knows and believes that God is the one who split the Red Sea and had them walk through. And he believes that God actually literally did that in history. He's a big God who does big things. But he also hasn't seen it. And it's been hundreds of years, thousands of years. And so he doesn't expect anything. When Philip comes to him, he very reasonably responds in verse 45. When Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and Nathanael reasonably says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can see Philip saying, we found him. The guy, the guy that we've been studying, the God that we've been studying our whole lives the one who said he's going to crush evil in Genesis 3.15. The one who will be more righteous than Moses and he'll be a sacrifice better than any before that will cover our sin. We believe here's the one who is a king like David, but his throne won't end. His kingdom will never end. And Nathaniel says, yeah, right. All of you probably grew up with some kind of bias against another people group. And uh, for me, I grew up in a little town called Wyalusing, Pennsylvania. And there's a town next to us that we hated for no other reason than because they were our rival football team, right? And there was a certain name that we called them. We called them Poolies from Tawanda. And I found out later in life it's because in the south side of Tawanda was very poor and a lot of people there were called Vanderpool. And so we used this term that I didn't understand for years, but we called them Poolies. And so if somebody said Jesus is from Tawanda, I'd be like, no, he's not. God does not come from places like Tawanda. He's not a pulley. I would never believe either. And so Nathaniel, never having seen a miracle in his life, figured he never would, and therefore no one else could either. So when Philip came to him and said, we found him, he reasonably responds, yeah, right. And that's when Jesus disrupts him. And so our second point, our disrupted expectations. I've heard Owen use this before. I don't know if it was here or when he preached to Oakwood years ago. But there's an article in the Atlantic that you can look up in 2003. And this writer of this article is a jazz enthusiast, which I am not. And he went to this bar in New York City that's supposed to be this famous dive bar where you could go and you could see kind of up-and-coming talent, people who were trying to prove themselves. It's a little tiny place and nobody who had made a name for themselves would go there anymore. And so he was there, and this band was playing this kind of slow and methodical, nothing to get too excited about music, as is all jazz, in my opinion. Um, and he said the trumpeter uh, was off to the side. He never got really a full look at him the whole time. And the trumpeter finally moved to the front and started playing a solo. And he said it was kind of slow, and people didn't pay attention at first. But then they started peeking up a little bit, and everybody started sitting up straighter and listening. And they realized something magical was happening. Something amazing was in front of them. And so this writer, being a jazz enthusiast, 
recognized who it was after he had eyes to see, and he saw that it was Wynton Marcellus. And probably three people in this room know who Wynton Marcellus is. I'm being one of them who didn't know two weeks ago. But Wynton Marcellus apparently, this is the writer's words, ruled the jazz universe for decades, but had a falling out years ago, and nobody had heard of him since. Kind of disappeared. Well, the solo that he was playing was incredible, and everybody was surprised by it because he's not supposed to be that good in that small of a venue. And so people started whispering that it was Wynton Marsalis, and it was reaching this crescendo, and everybody was relishing every note, and they were anticipating the, the end. It was this amazing disruption. Then all of a sudden, this was in 2003, cell phones were pretty new. A cell phone blared. And it just brought the whole thing to a halt. And they thought they're going to be part of something magical. And he literally wrote on a napkin as he was preparing, like, there's, there's something to write about here. This is an amazing experience. And when that cell phone went off, he wrote, magic ruined. You can feel that disruption. And that's what Jesus is doing in our scenario. It's the opposite. It's a disruption of, for good, right? Jesus wants to disrupt Nathaniel's cynicism. It's not good for Nathaniel to sit there and say, nothing ever good comes from, this, from the South Pole, right? Nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. God doesn't really show up anymore. It's been 400 years since he's done anything of note. It's been 2,000 for us. So in verse 47, he gets to see Jesus. Well, Jesus comes to him in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And so he was interested enough, right? He actually goes with Philip. He's like, I I guess I'll go see what it's all about with no expectations of anything good. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael, who's kind of on his back heels now, said to him, How do you know me? You know, Jesus is already being a little too familiar. Jesus, being omniscient in God himself, knows what's going on with Nathanael and actually kind of addresses Nathanael's internal thoughts in the words he shared in private with Philip. And so he's already on his back heels. Jesus is interrupting him in a small way. He kind of calls him old friend. He's like, ah, oh, there you are, my old friend. And he's like, a little too familiar, man, right? So he says, excuse me, do you know me? And Jesus said, well, yes. In verse 48, Jesus answered him, answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Which doesn't seem extraordinary, but look at his response. Nathaniel's response to him is, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He has this total flip from being cynical to on his knees before his God. Well, Jesus has this unique ability not to be worried about himself. And this is what undid Nathaniel at first. Everyone looks out for themselves, but not this Jesus. This Jesus is looking out for him. And there was something different about Jesus that undid him. And then he reveals to him that he could see him from miles off. It was too much for Nathaniel. Based on Nathaniel's reaction, we know that this must have been some distance away. And there's no way of somebody going to tell Nathaniel where, uh, telling Jesus where Nathaniel was. And so Nathaniel saw it truly as a miracle. There's something that happened in the early 1920s after uh, Darwin. There were a lot of Christians who tried to explain the miracles in the Bible away. And their, their original motivation was to reduce every stumbling block possible. So saying, we want people to really believe in Jesus. So we're going to say that the miracles were actually misunderstandings of the people of the time. So let's try to explain them away. If they knew science, then they, they wouldn't have believed these things. 
But these guys are not dumb. They're not gullible. Nathaniel knew there was no way he could see him unless he was omniscient. No way he could know his thoughts without being omniscient. And so Jesus is actually revealing himself to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is completely melted. He says, my God and my king. It brings him to his knees. You can imagine going about your business and kind of spouting off about pulleys or whatever. And all of a sudden, the God of the universe shows up. And you realize this whole time you've been kind of talking nonsense and cynicism and grumbling. And the almighty God is in your presence. When I was a teenager, I was taking the trash out. My dad made me get up from video games. I was playing Sonic on uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. And on Sega Genesis, it was awesome. And I can't believe he made me get up and take the trash out. It was unbelievable that he made me do it. And I was so angry in my teenage angst that as I walked out the door and took the trash and closed the door behind me, I just let out all of my anger and my spittle, everything I had, every uh, swear word that I can think of a dozen times, just letting it all out as I walked through the garage and to the trash can. And as I put the trash in there, I heard not far behind me, I'm sorry you feel that way about me. And my dad was there the whole time, following me, listening to me. And I realized when I was in the presence of my father, those words were for behind his back. Spouting off about not expecting anything from anybody, or let alone God. And Jesus reveals himself to be God himself. Jesus disrupts our lives, and he does so now through the scriptures. We kind of go through autopilot most of the time until something in our life, the monotonousness of the life kind of interrupts, and Jesus interrupts it. Think about Christmas, how sometimes that seems to be a special season, even in the church, because we we think differently about God. We picture what it was like that God actually came in the flesh and disrupted the world the creator God, totally above and big and transcendent and holy and all the things. People died when they were in the presence of God and it was unmitigated. Instantly, we're dead. Like a light switch turning on and the darkness is chased away. The sin in us just dies immediately. And here Nathaniel was completely irreverent and realizes he's in the presence of that God. And yet somehow he's not destroyed and that's what melts him. His knees, he's disrupted and he falls to his knees. This is a miracle of its own because he should be destroyed. But God's grace keeps him from being destroyed. In fact, that's why Jesus came as a baby. That's what Christmas is about. That he, we are not destroyed in the presence of God. That Jesus came to shield us from God's wrath by taking it for us. To come between us and God's wrath. And more than that, to clothe us with righteousness. So as amazing as that is, that Jesus disrupts our old expectations. He does something here, lastly, that gives us even more hope. Hopeful expectations for the future. And so let's look at the last point, new expectations. In 2013, Saving Mr. Banks came out. If you haven't seen it, I suggest going to see it. It's pretty good. Going to see it. You can't really go to see it. You could rent it. Uh, Saving Mr. Banks, P.L. Travers. She's the author of... Mary Poppins, and this movie's about Walt Disney getting the rights from P.L. Travers to create the movie that we all know, Mary Poppins, from her books. 
Well, the movie starts out as her being the sweet eight-year-old girl who has the whole world ahead of her and her, her whole life is wonderful. Her dad is asked, playing with her and asking her if she's seen the royal princess and he's playing all these fun games with her. Scoops her up and says the adventure is about to begin. And so you, you get this expectation that life's going to be wonderful for her. And of course, because she becomes the author of Mary Poppins, she must be a blast. Well, then the movie immediately flashes forward to P.L. Travers as a sophisticated, hard, unkind, unrelenting woman. And she's especially annoyed by children. And so the whole movie, in my mind, is, is begging the question, what happened to her? Well, her father, who was always fun on the outside, was all pretend. He'd fallen into kind of a self-consumed cynicism and he pretended less and less and he was critical outward more and more. And it culminates with him on his deathbed early at an early age and P.L. still a little girl and she goes up to him and she shares a poem with her and you know it's going to be good because this is a future, the future writer of Mary Poppins. It's going to be wonderful. And she shares her poem with him and he responds his last words to her. It's hardly Yeats, is it? And it crushes her. And something switches for P.L. in that moment. Everything promised to be good is a lie. Anything that sniffs of good is to be held in suspicion like a snake ready to strike. And so she hated Disney. She hated Walt Disney. She hated anything about make-believe because it doesn't prepare kids for real life. Many of us have taken the same vow as P.L. Travers that we won't get fooled again. And it's easy to walk through life, even as Christians, and tell ourselves, yeah, I'm glad to be saved by Jesus, but now I'm just expecting the worst. I'm kind of expecting the other the foot to drop, shoe to drop. Still expecting God's punishment, just holding on until I die, right? But while we prepare to not be fooled again, we get a father in heaven who won't stop proving his kindness to us. That's what the scriptures are doing in our lives. It's not like, he's not like P.L. Travers' father, but like a father who takes his kids to Disney, Right? And they're wowing over just the Disney's Magical Express, which is just a charter bus that picks you up from the airport to go to Disney, right? And they're like, Disney's amazing. And they get to the, the hotel and they see the life-size or bigger-than-life Timon and Pumbaa. And they're like, Disney is so amazing. And they get to the hotel room and they see that their bed's a flying carpet from Aladdin. And they're like, Disney's so amazing. And you know that they haven't even seen the real Disney yet. And so God here, Jesus here, is like a father who smiles and knows they haven't seen anything yet. Look at verse 50. After Nathanael responds, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answers him and says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He basically says, you ain't seen nothing yet. He's excited for Nathanael. He's excited for us about what we get to see him do over his lifetime, the next three years of his ministry, and even longer through his spirit and his church. We're conditioned by life to be a little bit suspicious, to not believe something could be this amazing, this pure, this good. And so what we do is we take the table scraps of life, bad relationships and promises of money and uh, intimacy with screens that uh, are, we're hoping will satisfy us and never do. They're just scraps. And there's a real meal. Jesus is excited about what we get to see. And what we get to see is summarized in verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
There's a lot there, but I'll, I'll say this one thing. The hearers of John would have known exactly what he's talking about. They would have known this was a picture of Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, if you want to look it up later. And in Jacob's dream, the angels were ascending and descending. There's this ladder that's connected earth to heaven, to God. And there's a ladder and the angels are descending and descending on it. And so clearly in this, the ladder's missing, right? Jesus says, you will see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus has replaced the ladder. Jesus is the way to God. The ladder is not one to be climbed, it's a person. The way to God is not a way, but a person. In, Je- in John chapter 6, verse 28, there's men who ask, what must we do to do the works of God? How can we be godly? What can we do for you, God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The first work of God is to believe him, not to do things for him. In the fall in Genesis 3, we lost our true home. We lost our connection with God. Jesus is the way back to that. And all, he always has been. He's the promise in Genesis 3.15. We sinned against God and we're separated from him. And this chasm can only be bridged by Jesus. Jesus invites us to come and see what else he does for us. That's the ultimate picture of what he does for us, but there's so much more. He comes and invites us to experience him, and we do that every day through his spirit, through his spirit in Leyden Church. And so we come together on Sunday mornings, and we're going to learn more about him. We come get together on Tuesday nights for small group, and we learn more about him. We come together over meals on Friday nights, and we hear more about him. Jesus basically says, stick around, Nathaniel. Stick around, all of you, and see what I'm about to do. His promises aren't just future. They're to be experienced now. And so the final question for us is this. How does that change how we live? How do we look up with eager expectation? How do we live in expectation that God will actually do the things he promised to do? We do that by not settling for less than God's goodness for us. Sean was a student of mine a few years back, and he always stayed on the outside of our ministry. And so we'd have uh, worship, but he'd kind of stay in the back and, and kind of work on some other things, but he'd still come. Um, he finally came to a conference with us where we had a speaker for, for two days, and he, he heard four sermons. And he always stayed on the edge of the group, and the narrative was that, that Sean was not a Christian. He just liked hanging out with, with his friends who came. But I watched him over that conference, and I saw that he was looking up and he was listening. And he was trying to look like he wasn't listening and wasn't looking up. And so I made a plan to sit down with him after this conference. And as we sat at the creamery, I asked him a few questions. And I said, you know, there's a narrative that you're, that you're not a Christian. Is that true? And he kind of wouldn't answer the question. And I said, well, let's, let me ask you a few pointed questions. I said, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And he's like, yeah. I said, do you believe it's real? He said, yeah. I said, do you believe that it was for you? He goes, yeah. And he's starting to smile a little bit. I said, Sean, you're a Christian. And he, he kind of smiled and said, I know. But what was sad for him is that he didn't want anybody to know because he knew what that meant for him. He'd been reading the scriptures by himself. He'd been reading them in Bible studies with us. He knew that if he told someone 
that God was calling him not just to be justified, to be right in God's eyes, but he was actually calling him to be sanctified, to actually become holy. He had a really hard childhood, and he clung to the hope that uh, this internal feeling that he was struggling with his sexuality, and he, was, he had this feeling that um, to be happy, he was going to have to end up with a husband. And he knew that the Bible was asking him to maybe give up that future that he pictured. And so we had a long conversation about how impossible that sounded to him. And I asked him, I said, would you come and belong in a group of people who are like you? And by that, I mean Christians. And by that, I mean a group of people who give things up that they want for something better. I said, would you consider coming to belong to people who are so wrapped up in Jesus that it's not only conceivable that you give up the future that you saw, but actually preferable to give it up. I think we have low expectations for Jesus in our lives, for our own sanctification, for his church, for our marriages. And so we settle for small comforts, things that usually fail us, money, relationships, pleasures of this world. Nothing bad in of themselves, but things that are just short of Jesus. In the midst of seeking happiness, or maybe just survival for some of you, Jesus disrupts us, and he wants something better for us. And we need to fall on our knees and say, my Lord and my God. And when we do, Jesus renews our expectations. And he says, keep coming. Keep finding out more about me. And so our invitation is to repent together of having low expectations for Jesus and actually expect him to do more. And we need each other to do that. I can't do that alone. I have a tendency to have low expectations. But let's look to Jesus together. Let me pray for us to that end. Lord, you are excited for us to see you. And Lord, we don't even have to wait to see you. We can see you now. Of course, we have to wait to see all of you, to see you full in bodily form and not just know you spiritually from a distance, but Lord, would you convince us to come to you for everything and not settle for less? Would you help us repent of those things that we might be happier to be in you rather than hold on to these things we think we need in this life? Lord, show us yourself this Christmas season especially. Would you Renew us so we might be eager to expect what you're going to do in our lives and in our neighbor's lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.